David is dead and Solomon has been established as king of Israel. This is the first time in Israel that a reigning monarch has been succeeded by his son and it's lucky that David had so many male children. First Amnon, then Absalom and then Adonijah were killed. Thankfully Solomon survives. Whether it was always David's plan for him to succeed him is unclear, but Solomon's mother Bathsheba is the only wife who the Bible describes David having an intimate relationship with. In stark contrast to David's reign, Solomon's is one of peace, alliances and, above all, construction. Israel's king builds on a monumental scale and, thanks to surrounding nations falling over themselves to furnish him with raw materials and an abundant and skilled workforce, his ambitions appear unstoppable. First, however, the Book of Kings journeys down a cul-de-sac with what appears to be a fable, but which might well be an episode from the life of Israel's wisest monarch. Two women come to the king asking him to settle a dispute, a dispute which hinges around a deceased infant. My name is Chaz Bayfield and this is Holy Bible Episode 77, The Half-Child. Hello listeners. Good to have you with us again on another short-haul flight through some of the less-read passages in the Old Testament. It's funny how the Bible is touted as the world's best-selling book, but of all bestsellers, it appears to be one of its least read. Many homes have a Bible, but who actually reads it, especially if they're not religious? Even Christians can struggle with the sheer density of some of its passages, and consequently, most churches cherry-pick around 50 or so readings which are rotated around the year. The one about ripping a child in half isn't a go-to passage for most priests hoping for a pleasant Sunday morning homily, but if you've been with us for a while, you'll know that the Bible can get a little X-rated. After all, in the previous episode, a lusty king bedded another man's wife who he had seen naked on her flat roof while she took a bath. Right, sleeves rolled up, we're going in. In the previous episode, Solomon asked God for wisdom rather than wealth and power. And, as if to emphasise the king's newfound sagacity, the writer of the first book of Kings tells readers about two women who come before him with a problem. In this story, two prostitutes have each recently given birth to a baby boy. The children were born in the house which they share, possibly some kind of brothel. Tragically, one of the infants died in the night. Only the two women were present at the time, and one blames the other of smothering her baby to death before swapping the two children around. The accused woman tells the other mother that this is a pack of lies and they continue squabbling in front of the king. Being wise, the king hatches a clever plan which, if successful, will decide which woman is telling the truth. He calls for a sword and orders that the living child be sliced in two and that one half be given to each of the women. Appalled that an innocent life should be taken, the baby's mother caves in and tells the king to give the child to her rival. 
it is better for her son to live and grow up with another mother than to die as a baby. However, the other woman has nothing to lose. She has already lost her child and perhaps wants her adversary to go through the pain she is suffering herself. She tells the king to go ahead and kill the baby. By now, the king realises which one is the true mother and hands the tiny boy to the woman who wanted him to live. All present marvel at his great wisdom and judgement, so much so that someone writes down an account of the episode and includes it in the Bible. Interestingly, despite being included in the account of Solomon, nowhere in this story are readers told that the king is actually Solomon. The story sits awkwardly in the book, breaking the flow of what has been a steady historical narrative that began in the first book of Samuel. In the Bible, Solomon is depicted as an able governor, a lover of the high life and a huge brain. Rather than rule the entire kingdom on his own, he makes the wise decision to elect officials to govern the country. Alongside his military chief Beniah and his priest Zadok, he retains Jehoshaphat as advisor and Adoniram as his head of forced labour. He also appoints some other trusted allies to his inner circle. Zadok's son Azariah is a priest and the sons of David's secretary Shiva are now secretaries themselves. Two of Nathan the prophet's sons also serve Solomon, one as a priest and one as another advisor. A man called Ahisha is placed in charge of palace management, while the disgraced Abiathar lurks in the shadows, a man who remains priest in name only. You might want to skip back an episode or two to see this particular man's fall from grace. Solomon also appoints 12 district governors, some of whom are his sons-in-law. These men are tasked with providing for the royal household, each being responsible for one month per year. Fun fact, one of Solomon's governors is named Ben-Hur. The Ben-Hur of novel and movie fame is purely fictional, and the name was chosen because it sounded biblical and was easy to pronounce. The writer describes how the Israelites now number the grains of sand on the seashore, a promise which the Bible reminds its readers God made to the patriarch Abraham centuries earlier. The extent of Solomon's territory is as large as Israel ever gets, stretching from the river Euphrates in the east to the former Philistine strongholds on the Mediterranean coast, right down to the border with Egypt. This is a time of plenty for Israel, and the king himself is provided with 5.5 tonnes of fine flour and 11 tonnes of coarse flour every day. He is also given 30 cows, 100 sheep and goats, as well as deer, gazelles, roebucks and what the Bible describes as choice fowl. If your brain doesn't do imperial measurements, the metric ones are in the notes. It's also a time of peace, during which everyone prospers. Unusually for a king who sticks to the rules written down by Moses, Solomon has 12,000 chariot horses, which are fed on barley and straw. This does suggest a reliance on military might rather than on God's benevolent aid, and in Bible terms is a bit of a red flag. The feed is brought to the horses by the district governors, who also provide food for the king and his guests, and make sure that nothing is ever lacking from the royal storehouses. Readers are told that Solomon is wiser than anyone in the east, 
as well as anyone in the whole of Egypt. He is wiser even than a man called Ethan the Ezraite, who must be the wisest man that the Book of Kings original audience will have heard of, and who is credited with writing a couple of the Psalms. The king is even wiser than the three sons of Mahol, who are equally obscure, although one of them does write the words to Psalm 88. Solomon's fame travels far beyond Israel. The book credits him with composing 3,000 proverbs and over 1,000 songs, as well as having encyclopedic knowledge of plant and animal life. Such is his wisdom that kings of many nations send people to Solomon's court to learn at the feet of the master. With his kingdom established and peace on all sides, it's time for Solomon to exploit his friendship with the Phoenician traders of Tyre and Sidon to build the first permanent structure in which he and his people can worship God. During his reign, David remained on good terms with Hiram, who still rules over the kingdoms of Tyre and Sidon. These two cities are prosperous seaports on the Mediterranean coast north of Israel, and much of the international trade in Old Testament times depends on the tenacity, seafaring skill and far-reaching trade network of the Phoenicians who used Tyre as their base. Curiously, there is no such place as Phoenicia. It's simply a collection of independent, self-ruling city-states that spread out from the eastern Mediterranean westwards as far as Spain and which include Tyre, Sidon and Carthage. Like Canaan, the name Phoenicia is taken from the purple cloth that is dyed using the shellfish known as the murex, and the Phoenicians make their money from lucrative trade deals across the Mediterranean. The Phoenicians are believed to have originated from the Persian Gulf, possibly Bahrain, and at the height of their influence they controlled the Mediterranean coast from Lebanon as far as the Pillars of Hercules, where the sea joins the Atlantic Ocean. Given the importance of Phoenician trade and the vast territory covered by these merchant adventurers, Phoenicia's alphabet was adopted by many of the territories that surround the Mediterranean and is the basis of the Roman alphabet still in use today. Some believe that the Phoenicians even made it as far as Cornwall in western England where they arrived in search of tin. Keen to maintain good relations, Hiram sends a delegation down to Israel to greet its new king. Solomon sends the men back north with a message that he is about to finish the great work begun by his father. As his father was almost always at war, he says, he was not in a position to build a permanent home for the tabernacle. Now there is peace on all sides, construction work can begin. Solomon tells Tyre's king that he is simply following God's will. The suggestion is that God promised David that it would be a son of his who would build him a temple. Much of the timber that Solomon depends on for the work he has planned makes its way to Tyre and Sidon from Lebanon, a lush mountainous land to the north of Israel. Back in Old Testament times, Lebanon is a nation of fabulous forests and mountains administered by the Phoenicians from Tyre. Lebanon forms one of the western frontiers of the Promised Land, and it is seen as a vast natural resource for kings such as Solomon to use for their ambitious building projects. Biblical Lebanon is slightly larger than its present-day counterpart, stretching along the eastern Mediterranean seaboard and encompassing the current coastline of Syria, 
Lebanon and northern Israel. It's a region filled with natural resources rather than a land with any major population centres and is verdant year-round thanks to high rainfall that is carried by westerly air from the Mediterranean. Solomon puts in an order for timber, promising that his own men will work alongside Hiram's expert tree fellers and that the king should name his price. Hiram is delighted to be able to help his powerful southern neighbour and agrees to float logs down the Mediterranean coast in exchange for food for his royal household. 3,200 tonnes of wheat and 120,000 gallons of olive oil are sent north to Hiram every year, while all the cedar and juniper needed for Solomon's building work are sent south. And the book notes this trade agreement as yet another example of Solomon's wisdom. One of the most fabulous buildings ever imagined, the temple's construction begins in the fourth year of Solomon's reign. Bringing the necessary wood to Israel is a monumental effort. To make sure that the work is completed, Solomon conscripts 30,000 forced labourers who he sends to Lebanon in shifts, working one month on and two months off. Added to this, he has 70,000 people involved in transporting materials to Jerusalem, as well as 80,000 stonecutters stationed in the hills to shape the limestone slabs into useful building blocks. 3,300 foremen oversee the transformation of Hiram's timber and stone into usable construction material. The temple itself measures 99 feet long, 30 feet wide and 45 feet high. It has a portico and side rooms around the outside, which are for priestly accommodation and temple storage, and which, at three storeys high, are still only around half the height of the main building. Incredibly, all the stone is dressed and readied at the quarry, so that there is no sound of hammer, chisel or any other iron tool at the temple site, suggesting that the building is constructed in near silence. Entry to the temple is from the south, with staircases rising to each level, and the roof is made from cedar. Solomon remains confident that God wants this temple built. He believes that God has spoken to him, promising him that he will not abandon Israel if its king sticks to his laws. Buoyed by this divine endorsement, building continues apace. The interior walls of the temple are lined with cedar, while the floors are made from juniper wood. The main building has two rooms, an inner sanctuary called the Most Holy Place, or Holy of Holies, that is a perfect 60-foot cube, and a larger hall called the Holy Place, which is the same height and width, but twice as long. This larger hall is lined with cedar and decorated with carved gourds and flowers, leaving no stonework visible. Quite why, of all vegetables, the humble gourd should be chosen to decorate the most sacred room in Israel is uncertain. Some translators think that the word might also mean bud. The Holy of Holies is where the Ark will live, and the entire interior of this room is lined with pure gold. If you're new to this podcast, the Ark of the Covenant is the Jews' most sacred chest, a golden box containing the two stone tablets on which are inscribed the Ten Commandments. The wooden altar is dressed with gold and a golden chain forms a barrier between the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. 
Solomon also installs a couple of giant olive wood cherubim. Far from being chubby-cheeked babies tooting on tiny trumpets, cherubs are the warlike creatures who are supposed to have guarded the entrance to the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve were banished. Here, in the most holy room in the temple, they stand with wings outstretched, symbolically protecting the Ark. Smothered in gold, these angelic beings measure 25 feet from wingtip to wingtip. The interior walls of the temple are carved with flowers, palm trees and more cherubim, and even the floor is covered with gold. Wooden doors carved with cherubim, palm trees and flowers are covered in gold, and the courtyard is paved with dressed stone. The whole project takes seven and a half years to complete, and is funded by treasures and tributes that pour into Israel from neighbouring kingdoms, thanks to David's military victories. Finally, after 400 years of worshipping in a canvas tent, God's people have a temple. Whilst it is great news for the Israelites that they now have a permanent building in which to worship, Solomon also finds time to build a home for himself. Readers should be on the alert for disaster when they are told that construction for Solomon's private palace takes a staggering 13 years to complete. He has spent almost twice as long on this building as he has on God's. At 148 feet long, 75 feet wide and 46 feet high, it dwarfs the temple, which is barely half its size. In fact, the design incorporates so much wood that it is known as the Palace of the Forest of Lebanon. The building is well lit, with plenty of windows, and has a portico and colonnade. There is a throne hall in which Solomon sits in judgment, and readers are told that a similar palace is built for the Egyptian princess, who the king has married. These buildings have walled courtyards, addressed in polished stone, and count as some of the most fabulous construction projects in the ancient world. To demonstrate that he hasn't completely taken his eye off the ball when it comes to God, Solomon commandeers a man named Huram to work on the temple's interior design. Huram's mother is an Israelite, but his father comes from Tyre and he appears to be a gifted metal worker. Despite his only partial Jewish heritage, Huram gets stuck in to create the finishing touches on God's earthly HQ, turning it into the most fabulously ornate building in the known world. The first book of Kings lists the bronze and golden artefacts fashioned by Hiram, which include two columns measuring a staggering 26 feet high. These are so impressive that they are given names, a little like ships are christened today. Jakin means he establishes, and Boaz means in him is strength, suggesting that the building is a stronghold that will last. At the top of each pillar where it joins the ceiling is an ornate bronze capital decorated with pomegranates and lilies and interwoven with chains. Huram constructs a giant bronze bowl called a sea. Why it is called this is uncertain. The sea measures 15 feet across and is decorated with pomegranates. Again, Bible experts draw a blank as to why. Some Jewish traditions believe that the pomegranate has 613 seeds, corresponding to the 613 Jewish laws. The bowl is used for ritual washing. It rests on a stand of 12 bronze bulls set in groups of three facing north, east, south and west. 
and it can contain 9,680 gallons of water. Huram also makes 10 ornate bronze wheeled stands decorated with lions, bulls, palm trees and cherubim and places bowls on them possibly to use during the temple sacrifices as well as fashioning pots, shovels and sprinkling bowls for temple use. The Bible doesn't mention what happened to the original furniture from the tabernacle and why this isn't appropriate for the new temple. One reason might be that the tabernacle furnishings have hoops for poles to slide through to make them portable, while Solomon's fixtures are permanent. It's fair to say that the cut and thrust of David's own personal Game of Thrones had a certain pace, which these pages that describe architecture and design do not. Still. They are a fascinating window on construction and decor from around 1000 BC. The book gives details on how the temple's bronze furnishings were manufactured. They were cast in moulds made from the clay found in the Jordan Valley. Readers are told that Solomon doesn't weigh the bronze that was used because there is so much of it, so an exact final amount is never determined. On top of this, the king commissions all the furnishings for the temple the altar, the table and the lampstands, the dishes, wick trimmers and censers, the sprinkling bowls, the tongs and the door hinges, all of them made from gold. Once everything is finished, Solomon places all the silver, gold and furnishings that had been put aside by his father for temple purposes in the building's treasuries, and God's permanent dwelling place on earth is complete. So, after the almost constant battles and rebellions of David's reign, Solomon's is a more sedate affair. But then again, Solomon didn't seduce another man's wife and conspire to have her husband killed, the reason the Bible gives for all the hardships suffered by David after his affair with Bathsheba. Solomon's reign is seen as proof of how God has blessed both Israel and his chosen ruler. Solomon is the first king who is related to David and is consequently the current ruler in a dynasty which the Bible promises will last forever. His wealth and wisdom are famed throughout the known world and the scene is set for perhaps the most opulent meeting of monarchs that has ever been recorded. In the southern Arabian kingdom of Sheba, a queen is readying herself for a journey. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chas Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. Do look out for the special episode, Not in the Bible, where I go through one or two myths that people seem to think are in the Bible but aren't. You might also be interested to hear that the first 50 or so episodes of this podcast can be read snakes and angels a secular walk through the first five books of the bible is available to download from amazon thanks for listening see you next time